Good evening, everybody. It's Jean Nathan. This is Crosstown Conversations. And here we are just um, just under two weeks from our election. And it is a very important time in New Orleans um, with a, a very major turnover in city government coming right at the um, same time as our tricentennial celebration. So we're going to talk tonight about the tricentennial um, and uh, plans for that that um, we have uh, had cooked up for us by GNO Inc. in combination with a lot of other people in the city. And then we're going to have a little change in the program because of, for those of you who read my newsletter, um, we were hoping to have t- an interview that I pre-recorded with Todd Methane on tonight, and um, that's going to have to come next week because we had a little bit of a problem uh, technically that um, I didn't anticipate with the length of the interview. So Todd Methane, CEO, Renaissance Publishing, next week. And tonight we're going to talk with two really interesting people from Tulane who were going to come on later. Um, who are um, involved with some very exciting research uh, at Tulane into stem cell um, regenerative medicine. And this is important for all of us because probably before most of us uh, uh, leave the earth, we're going we're gonna to experience the values in one way or another of all this stem cell research. But let's get started first with um, Rachel Shields, who is Chief of Staff for the Greater New Orleans, Inc., which is our leading economic development organization in the city. And um, Rachel, um, you're going to talk with us about this terrific program. I really love this program. Uh, NOLA 300, it is a, a way to kick off the tricentennial year, hearing from many people in the city who uh, work hard for our city on, in, in one way or another from various and diverse parts of, of, of uh, our community. And um, I'm just I'm knocked out by this program. So, Rachel, are you with us? I am with you, Jean. How are you today? Oh, we've had kind of a little confusion here at the end when I discovered that this recording I was going to run after you was a little too long uh, to uh, send. Um, it never happened to me before, so I think it has something to do with other things on my phone. I don't know. Uh, at any rate, I'm, I'm thrilled to be talking with you about um, this NOLA 300 program, which we had um, really um, uh, looked forward to. And so... Um, let's let's start from scratch. Tell me what it's all about, where the idea came from, what you're hoping to accomplish with it. Sure, sure. Well, it's a really wonderful story, actually. There are two things going on here, actually, with the NOLA 300 conference. First of all, I just want to mention that um, Gina Wink is really working with the 2018 NOLA Commission um, to establish this NOLA 300 program which really kind of sets the foundation um, and offers um, broad personalities and some really iconic iconic New Orleans people to really come together and talk to New Orleanians about the past 300 years of New New Orleans. We really wanted to establish this program to celebrate the tricentennial and really kind of establish that groundwork to help people really understand where New Orleans has come from some of the things that we are experiencing in our present and some of the opportunities we have going forward. So the NOLA 300 conference is themed past, present, future of New Orleans, and it's intended to give some inspiring stories um, all centered around a whole bunch of different really incredible topics that make us uniquely New Orleans. So those topics include the arts, music, culinary, but also things like healthcare and innovation living in a cultural community, and all types of things like that that make us uniquely New Orleans. So NOLA 300 is going to take place in just about two weeks. It's happening on November 14th from 1 to 6 in the afternoon over at the historic Orpheum Theater. Such a beautiful facility for this. When the program wraps up at 6 p.m., there is actually an after party in good New Orleans style from 6 to 8 taking place also right there at the Orpheum Theater. So we are so excited to get this program off the ground. So uh, tell me um, a, a little bit about the perspective that you have gained about the 
past years and the coming years from talking with the people who are going to be in the program. And let's talk a little bit about some of the speakers because it really is a wide and diverse uh, group of people. And uh, I, I'm, I'm just really impressed with the the wide variety of subjects that you're going to be covering. It's not, And it's not just about the culture. It really is about all aspects of the city. Mm-hmm. It truly is. So we have, for example, some folks we have joining us um, on a culinary panel. We have Chef Leah Chase, Chef Donald Link, and Chef Alon Shaya um, really talking with those guys about the culinary industry in New Orleans, some of those things that really make us this unique sort of melting pot and gumbo, if you will, um, of food offerings, um, kind of where we've come from with Cajun food and Creole food in the past. And then, of course, leading up to things like Hurricane Katrina and where our culinary, where we were on sort of the global scale in terms of offerings and the things that people have always come to New Orleans for in terms of Creole food and those specific recipes that you just can't get anywhere else. And then we're also going to talk with those folks a little bit about um, how to keep New Orleans on that global stage and keep our global standing um, the way we are going into the future. You know, we've got a lot of really young chefs coming out of New Orleans um, who are really looking to make their mark and leave their legacies behind. What does New Orleans have to offer for folks like that? So that will be a broad conversation. And there and there really has been such an evolution in, in our uh, culinary traditions because we have, as you said, the old um, Creole and, uh, and Cajun and, and really African-American foodways are so uh, intertwined mm-hmm. um, along with Irish, Italian, German. I mean, we, have, we're, we always were from the very beginning such a melting pot, not to mention Native American as well. That's another factor in our culinary <laughs> traditions. But since Katrina, we've had – it really started before Katrina. And I have to say, probably K. Paul um, is is uh, one of the people, uh, one of the restaurants that really set the pace for new interpretations of our traditions. And and now we have these young chefs who are creating this whole new cuisine. So I'm sure we'll hear about that during the panel. Yes, yes, absolutely. We also have um, we have Chief Shaka Zulu from the Golden Mardi Gras Golden Feather Mardi Gras Indian Gallery joining us also um, on the cultural side to talk a little bit about the Mardi Gras Indians. And um, I found that really interesting in speaking with the chief, really about the Mardi Gras Indians, the history there, the Voices of Congo Square, which is this program that he's putting on um, at the Orpheum in April, later in 2018, and really kind of understanding how the Mardi Gras Indians um, uh, came to be, some of the traditions throughout the Mardi Gras Indians, and, and some of these new tribes. Um, that are kind of popping up and starting to establish themselves. We'll talk a little bit about the the art making um, in in creating the the costumes, the the art of doing that, the difficulties of doing that, and really kind of sharing a lot of the skills and talents, passing those on, passing the torch, if you will, to some younger generations to really kind of carry a lot of these traditions forward so we don't lose this deep, that, 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 that's such an important part of what makes New Orleans so unique that these really old uh, traditions continue on from generation to generation. And one of the most remarkable really is the, the making of the Indian suits, which is an elaborate, painstaking process of the, all the beading. And I've, I've done beadwork in my life, and I know how... Uh, how difficult and intricate and intense that can be. And and the people who wear the costumes are the ones who make them, and they spend the whole year before they wear their suits making them. And to to think that we are continuing that tradition is is just such a glorious thing about New Orleans and, and, and our past and future. It is. It's one of those things that just makes us uniquely New Orleans. You won't find talent and such a deep cultural heritage like that anywhere else, arguably in the world, other than in New Orleans. So we're really thrilled to have him join us also. Of course, we also have um, Deacon John Moore joining us as speaker for the NOLA 300 conference. And Deacon John is going to give us a little snippet about his um, kind of growing up in a musical family in New Orleans. He'll talk a little bit about the scene, the music scene and the jazz scene of New Orleans way back in the day. We'll learn a 
little bit about what was hip, what was fun, what um, artists, up-and-coming artists and musicians were really thinking about and talking about and focusing on um, coming up here in New Orleans. And then, you know, he'll, he'll do the same thing in terms of the present and the future. He'll talk a little bit about what he might be hearing from um, some local artists and musicians coming up in New Orleans and some of the stories that they can share with him and, and really being available to inspire young folks um, and the younger generation and caring for some of these jazz and rock and roll traditions that we have here. So we're excited about that, too. And there, there aren't uh, many people in the music world who know more about it than Deacon John, and he crosses uh, uh, so many different genres, and, um, and he's actually, he's also really articulate and knowledgeable and, and a fun speaker, so... Um, he's always uh, really interesting and entertaining to listen to, so that's a great choice. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Another guest we have joining us is Mr. Blaine Kern, Jr., himself of Mardi Gras Productions. Certainly wouldn't be uh, a panel on the history and future of New Orleans without somebody from the Kern Foundation, the Kern <laughs> Organization. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely, from the iconic family. We're just so thrilled, so thrilled and pleased to have him join us and really talk about um, Mardi Gras, talk about float building, um, this building of a family legacy that just means so much to our heritage here, um, and really talk about things that folks are doing around the globe um, that are trying to replicate what we're doing here in New Orleans. Um, and so it'll be really interesting to talk to you and, and learn about the future of, of, uh, of Mardi Gras and things he's got up his sleeve also. So that'll be really interesting to hear from him. I see you have Kyle Wedberg from NOCA, and so if, if there is any institution that's, um, again, a metaphor for our future, it's NOCA where so many of our young, talented people um, get the professional training they need to advance careers in the creative fields. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So uh, Kyle Wedberg will join us on our art panel where we are just really excited to, uh, to welcome some outstanding folks there, too. Of course, we have our artist, Terrence Osborne, joining that panel also to talk a little bit about um, his art, his talent, and bringing that to the, to the global stage from New Orleans. Terrence Osborne has deep, deep roots and connections to NOCA. He's a NOCA graduate, um, and he's had um, some, some really great connections with NOCA also, so that's that's a really a synergy that we want to want to represent on the stage there. And then, of course, we have the fabulous Ms. Jean Mason, founder, one of the founders of the CAC. I credit you with the courage to put me on the panel. You just never know what I'm going to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, it certainly is a treat to really round out a discussion when we're talking about the arts. There's just no way we can't talk about the CAC and the tremendous efforts that were um, brought on to to bring the CAC to life, talk a little bit about the future of what that means and some of the opportunities that it's brought to artists um, all over the New Orleans area. And then, of course, the star power of um, Mr. Terrence Osborne. You just can't beat a conversation like that. It's really going to be interesting. I see you have Karen DeSalvo, who um, has been a part of the administration here. She represents the health field and um, has been up at the uh, um, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. I'm going to be very interested to hear what she has to say because the the health industry is so important to the future of the city, so uh, Mm -hmm. we're going to be informed by her. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. She's actually going to have a really wonderful talk. You know, whenever we do events like this and, and we're really focused on culture and heritage, um, very few times do we have a chance to bring in some of these other topics that really contribute just as much um, to all of the assets and all of the wonderful things that are happening in New Orleans and in our region um, than we do with things like this. So we're so pleased to have Karen DeSalvo, Dr. Karen DeSalvo, join us as a speaker also, and she'll really touch on healthcare issues and some of the things that New Orleans has done to be really creative and innovative in bringing new technologies and new things to the world. For example, with Charity Hospital, um, when it right. was, uh, was running, mm-hmm. all of the wonderful things that came out of Charity Hospital in terms of innovation, it being one of the top trauma centers in all of the world, um, and things that she's learned throughout her career that really makes New Orleans unique in terms of what it's brought to that global city. And since you're in the middle of the fall season, it certainly makes sense to have uh, somebody representing the Saints, and I, I, I hope uh, by two weeks from now he has even more to crow about than what we're crowing about at the moment. Mm-hmm. 
That's right. We're super excited to welcome Steve Gleason, former Saints player and um, and header of uh, of Team Gleason right now. He's he is just such a wonderfully inspiring person. He's going to talk a little bit about sports in New Orleans and kind of what that means to our culture. You know, we've got everything here in New Orleans for you know, horse racing, um, baseball, basketball football and many 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 different other sports that we enjoy here those things are really important to to our heritage and to our culture at a time especially a time like now when things around the world are are so politicized um intentions are running really really high these are the things that really inspire people bring people together in a way that nothing else does um and achieves and accomplishes so he's going to be great talking about what that means to the people of new orleans and, of course, the mayor, Mayor Mitch Landrieu, who is the one who made sure that our uh, tricentennial is about the future just as much as the past. So I'm sure he had a voice in, in um, creating this whole program, this whole idea. Absolutely, absolutely. And what a special time for him to yeah. be the mayor of New Orleans when we're entering the 300th anniversary of the founding of this city. Um, it's just it's been tremendous. His leadership has just been quite wonderful and unwavering and really um, honoring the 300th anniversary and bringing together people and voices and organizations who can really just tell inspiring stories to celebrate 300 years of New Orleans and really keep that path forward and focused on where we go from here, sort of the next 300 years. So so I can't resist um, in, in asking you to... Um, uh, share with me a little uh, uh, perspective since I have you um, on the air from uh, GNO Inc., which is, of course, our lead economic development agency in the city, of course, partnering with the New Orleans Business Alliance that is the partnership of the city with the private sector. So mm-hmm. give me just a little bit of a sense of the focus currently, if you don't mind me uh, broaching a broader subject, of, of where GNO is is thinking um uh, are the important priorities for development of the city right now as we go into a new administration? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So Gina Wink focused on a number of different um, industry sectors and focus areas in partnership with our local economic developers like the New Orleans Business Alliance all across our region. Really, um, we've been focused quite a bit on our global relationships, our international relationships, for quite some time. You know, New Orleans is a global city. It always has been. Um, we were founded in part because of uh, geographically because of where we are. We have people of all cultures. And, and by that, let me just say for those people who don't think about the, the river that much, um, you know, we are literally at the mouth of uh, the mighty Mississippi, that, um, uh, which is a, a, a artery for, um, I don't know, huge percentage, and I, I've heard the number, and maybe you know it, of, of product uh, and, and um uh, various agricultural products in particular that come down from all over the Midwest of, of America to the rest of the world through the Gulf out to the um, ocean. Mm-hmm. Yep, you're absolutely right. And and not a lot of people know this, but Louisiana, our port system um, from the mouth of the Mississippi down to, in the Gulf all the way up, we've got one of the top port systems in all of the world. So we truly are a global city right here in New Orleans, and so we are really focused on international relations with things like things like uh, promoting the Port of New Orleans and our other ports, but also looking at things like international flight connectivity to the rest of the world, Copa Airlines with a direct flight between New Orleans and the country of Panama, recently British Airways with a direct flight between New Orleans and London. We have Condor Airlines now with direct flight to Frankfurt and Germany and many others. So um, a, a good focus of Gina Wink for the next administration and then also going into the future is to really um, maximize all of our potential and bringing some of that business back to New Orleans that we lost so many years ago um, to reestablish ourselves as that global presence. And we couldn't have a, a more progressive and dynamic um, new port director than um, Brandy, who came to us from uh, San Diego and is, is really expanding on um, the role and the, and the potential of the port. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. We are, have a great relationship with Brandy and all of the folks over at the Port of New Orleans. She's really a tremendous leader, and we're looking forward to what she'll bring next to the table at the Port of New Orleans.
So, Port, how about our energy in, industry? Uh, that's kind of a, a little bit of a confusing uh, matter at the moment. They've, they've had a rough uh, couple of years here with the with, um, I, I don't think any of us really understand exactly what happened with the market, although um, a lot of product came online via f fracking, I guess, and, and that was um, a factor. But um, how do you see the, f the future of um, our energy industry in New Orleans? I think the future is bright. You know, the energy industry, um, with Louisiana producing about 30% of the world's um, energy out there, right there off, off of our shores, um, I think the future is pretty bright for us. We've got, we've got a number of tremendous challenges, um, but this is an industry that fluctuates up and down. We've definitely had our downsides um, downsize <laughs> about this last year or so, and so I think the tide is getting ready to shift. We're actually, um, Gina Leak is leading a business summit to London this January to talk with some folks in the U.K. also about um, some of their energy assets learn a little bit about some of the things that they're doing really well, talk to some headquarters there to see how we can influence more investment and things of that nature down here in New Orleans. And, and, and uh, I assume that we're, we're looking at how we can make sure that we're a part of the uh, growing uh, use of, of renewable energy and the green energy sources. And I, I don't, I'm not uh, that knowledgeable about the energy industry, so I don't know to what extent the traditional um, fossil fuel industry is is going to make that transition. So um, how are we looking at that? We are definitely looking at renewable energy um, as a source um, for investment down here in South Louisiana. It's one of those things, you know, around the globe, we really have to start looking at opportunities for sustaining the things that we have, for growing our natural resources, and really working with our companies on the ground to make sure that they're able to maximize investment on that front, too. So that's, that's definitely another thing that Gino Inc. and our partners and all of our business leaders are going to be focused on um, over the next several years, too. Another sector that is really growing, and it's going to be my transition to my next interview um, in New Orleans, and I know we've we've put a lot of uh, eggs in this basket as well, is our, our health industry, our medical uh, district. Um, we kind of, you know, plowed a bunch of little houses down that some of us were upset about, but um, now that we have the, the new LSU Center and the VA Center in, in the middle of New Orleans, in the mid-city area, um, I think we're all really optimistic and hopeful that um, that's going to be in a really important uh, way for us to grow our, our economy in general in the city. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. With our medical corridor and all of the research and assets that we have surrounding that, uh, Gina Wink and our partners are really now focused on things like destination health care. So what is the niche in New Orleans? Um, is it neurosurgery? Is it sports medicine? Is it um, heart disease, uh, diabetes? Things of, those, those are the types of things that we really want to make sure that we're able to not only serve the needs of the people within our own communities, but we want to attract destination health care from around the globe. We want people to come to New Orleans to spend their dollars to get medical care, um, to deal with research and things of those things of that nature um, that only we can provide here in the greater New Orleans area. So we're really excited about the opportunities that that whole corridor will bring to us over the next several years. Rachel Shields, you're a terrific interview. I have to have you on the show more often. And um, but before I let you go, I'm just going to badger you on one point. I'm sure somebody uh, uh, told you how passionate I am about the creative industry sector and how I don't feel that we're really doing enough to invest and grow that industry. So I'd love to hear your comments on that. And then I am going to definitely extend my invitation to you to come back and visit with us because um, you seem to know a lot and um, you're just a great interview. Oh, gosh. Well, Jean, I can't thank you enough. That is so kind of you. Thank you. And then I want you, before we end all together, I certainly want you to close out with a reminder of the um, time and date and place for um, NOLA 300. Of course, of course. Well, on the on the creative arts, um, we are definitely definitely supportive and passionate about that. It's one of those things that makes our unique our community so unique. It's one of those foundational things that our community and our heritage culture is built on. So we are as passionate and we are supporting in in, in as many ways that we possibly can. Well, I'm uh, happy to see how much a part of the uh, Nella 300. Um, th that will be, by the way, the way that's organized is what is, is it like a series of panels? Is that how it's going to work? It will be very much like a TEDx 
style or tech ah, style. Okay. Uh-huh. So we have some single speakers who will speak for about 10 minutes or so, really brief talks. And then we have a couple of panels that are about 30 minutes long each. Um, but the program will move really quickly. We've only got about five hours to squeeze in a whole lot of content. Um, so it'll be it'll be really fun with some entertainment peppered here and there throughout the program. Fantastic. Um, I really encourage people to attend this. I think that it's so important for all of us to be informed on what's going on in the city and what our opportunities are, because you just never know where there may be an opportunity that will affect you personally, your family, your neighborhood. So um, this is something important for folks to uh, uh, come, and it sounds like you've, you've made a point of um, making sure that it's entertainable and uh, entertaining and enjoyable, too. So time, place, date. The, the NOLA 300 conference, again, is taking place on November 14th. That's a Tuesday from 1 to 6 p.m. at the historic Orpheum Theater. You can purchase tickets at Eventbrite. If you go to Eventbrite and just search for NOLA 300, you'll find us there. You can also visit the website of the 2018 NOLA Commission. That's 2018NOLA.com to see all of the other tricentennial events and celebrations going on in 2018. This has been great. I really enjoyed it. As I said, I'm going to have you back. Thank you so much, Jean. Thanks, Talk Rachel. You, you take care. See you. See you, you at uh, Nolo 300. Bye bye. Bye bye. Okay, folks. Now you know um, I have been kind of um, speaking of badgering, badgering Tulane folks to keep me better informed on research that's happening. Um, uh, at, at Tulane, because we tend to kind of, you know, think of our universities as, oh, isn't that wonderful they're there? But we don't think enough about what they're doing there and how um, important the achievements are uh, for our community as well as the rest of the world. So um, I, I got a, um, a, a press release that uh, told me about um, – um, an award that Tulane recently got uh, for um, from the um, National Science Foundation um, for innovation work. And uh, two um, uh, doctoral students and faculty mentors were awarded $50,000 grants during the past few years to look into the marketability and viability of their bench science as they do um, – work on new products. Bruce, how do you pronounce it? Bunnell? Yeah. Okay, Bunnell is a PhD. He's a director of the Center for Stem Cell Research and Regenerative uh, Medicine. I'm sure almost everybody in my audience has uh, at one time or another come across that expression, stem cell. Yes. We probably, most of us, don't know what that means. So we're going to explore that as we talk. Nick, Pashos. So, Nick, you must be Greek, right? I am. <laughs> <laughs> Most Nicks that I know <laughs> are either sort of Eastern European or Greek. Uh, and, of course, Pashos. So he's the founder and CEO of an organization called Bioaesthetic. Yes. Bioaesthetic, what an interesting name. Also, Ph.D. student at Tulane. Okay, what's going on? First of all, why did you guys get an award? Let's start with that. Sure, so... I'm a student actually in uh, Dr. Bunnell's lab, and in his lab we work on stem cells and regenerative medicine, and my project specifically has been focused on regrowing the nipple and areola complex for women who've had mastectomies due to breast cancer. Ah, that's why it's aesthetic. Right. Oh, so God, how important is that? Very important. Ladies, so, gentlemen. Yeah. <laughs> so as we know, you know, more than 3 million breast cancer survivors are currently living, living in the United States. Roughly three million. Three million in wow. the U.S. Roughly mm-hmm. one out of every eight women will be diagnosed with breast cancer in their lifetime. And That's what the, the statistic is now? Mm-hmm. Right. So That's actually a little better, isn't it, than it used to be? It, so the death rate has dropped significantly, right. but the rate of um, occurrence Contr- is still pretty high. Okay. Um, and for women, it's one of the highest uh, mortality rates as a type of cancer. Really? Um, still. Uh-huh. Um, but in uh, Bruce's lab... We focus on all areas, so he has projects focused on stem cells' role in breast cancer, um, regrowing the nipple and aerial complex without using cells, but purely just materials, um, and then using the role of stem cells in aging as well. 
So his lab is quite large, and so we all take on these different little projects. Um, I spun mine out to a company, which Bruce is now a scientific advisor in, um, and the company is now located at the New Orleans Bioinnovation Center located on Canal Street, across the street from the Tulane uh, Medical School. Uh, so that's kind of where my role is within the laboratory, and now it's been focused mostly in spinning out this technology, getting it through safety and efficacy trials into FDA, and uh, the goal is to be within people within about 18 months of today. Wow. I, you know, it sounds very, very specific, but, you know, it's so fundamental for um, everybody. I mean, it, it really is a, a, a very important um, issue. And as you said, so many people are affected by breast cancer. Are, are we any closer to understanding why we get breast cancer? Um, I think to some extent we are. We, this the, is Bruce speaking. The era of genomic medicine where we can look at um, – we can take breast genomic being based on the genes. Yes. So mm -hmm. we can take a tumor now and look at all of the genes that are expressed within that tumor, and we can hopefully make decisions on kind of key pathways that regulate tumor development and tumor progression and metastasis. The other thing that will allow uh, scientists and physicians to do, hopefully someday, is design a specific treatment strategy such that if your tumor expresses more of gene A, then another patient who may express more of gene B, there may be a medicine that we can give you that would work in treating your tumor but may not work as well in the patient where gene A is not as expressive at high enough levels. Yeah, we're getting much more refined, we are. basically, we're in right. how to treat different kinds of cancers Correct. and understand their origins and, and how to alter Correct. the progression. Yes. And, and so y y y um, Nick was just mentioning the breadth of what goes on in your, mm -hmm. in your lab. So give me just a little bit of, a, of an idea sure. of, of, you know, the different iterations of what you're up sure. to. So our center is a two-lane-wide effort. So we have several faculty that are involved in our center that cross all campuses of Tulane. Um, essentially, the goal for all of the faculty members is to figure out strategies to treat diseases. So our primary strategy is to use stem cells. So if you have a lung disease or a kidney disease or a liver disease, can we take stem cells, which have the ability to, in theory, become any cell in any organ type, infuse those into your sick liver or sick lungs and have those cells um, take over for the damaged cells and make your lungs function the way they used to function. So there's been a lot of effort uh, across the globe in stem cell research and trying to use stem cells to treat diseases. I'm a personal believer that within the next few decades, this will become very routine practice. So some of your audience that are listening tonight will benefit from stem cell Younger. research. So what about us oldsters? It's a good question. So, I mean, there already are stem cell therapies. So a, a bone marrow transplant, for example, where that we use to treat all sorts of leukemias and lymphomas. That's essentially stem cell therapy. So within that bone marrow, there are stem cells or cells that are capable of generating every cell in your blood system. And so that's why that works. So when we... Is it easier to approach the blood system? In many ways it is. Uh -huh. um, you know, one of the issues with a solid organ such as a kidney or a lung or a brain is um, getting enough cells in there at the right time that respond in the right way that they can essentially take over for all of the damaged cells. In the blood, because it's a, a more of a fluid tissue, it's in some ways easier to treat uh -huh. because if we can get cells into the bone marrow and those cells behave the way we expect them to, we know we can get blood cells that will come out of those stem cells. The things in the solid organs are really still very much exploratory. There are things going on where patients um, are receiving stem cells for, say, treating liver disease or lung disease, but they're really It's interesting that trials. you pick lung and liver because mm -hmm. those are two cancers that, as I understand it, correct me if I'm wrong, have always been some of the hardest to work with in curing. Uh, they are. I mean, uh, essentially what we're talking about is uh, all types of disease, so not necessarily just cancer. So if you have liver failure, if you have pulmonary fibrosis, if you have COPD, um, if you have 
extensive diabetes-associated damage with your kidneys. We're trying to use stem cells to treat all different types of disease, not necessarily just cancer. So um, different diseases are going to potentially require different types of stem cells, um, different um, types of mature cells for those stem cells to turn into. And so what, what, where we currently are is probably in the infancy of this field. Uh, it will rapidly mature over the next few decades and such that I, people's children will be impacted by stem cell research and regenerative medicine. Uh, the other thing that my laboratory works on is trying to make laboratory-generated organs. So the days of having to sign people up to be organ donors are coming to an end. Um, in the future, if someone needs a lung or someone needs a kidney or someone needs a liver, we'll just make it in the laboratory and transplant it into that person. And you'll do that by choosing to develop those kinds of cells that make a liver. Is that uh, that's part of it. Saying that's yes. part of it. So essentially to make an organ is, is, is very challenging. Um, but essentially you need um, a scaffold, a matrix. So it's kind of like the framing of a house. You need the support structure there. So the hardest part is developing a matrix that will support the growth and differentiation of stem cells into, say, functional liver cells. So there are various approaches that people have used. If you see the news or read the local media, you hear about 3D printing. We're just going to 3D print everything. So I can 3D print on a liver, and I can 3D print a lung. And, and someday that will become a reality. Right now, when it comes to 3D printing, what they're printing is an inert support structure. So I can get something that looks like a lung, looks like a liver. Uh, what's missing is the ability of that support structure to talk to the stem cells that go into there. Oh, interesting. So that's the challenge that's yes. being resolved. So where where does Tulane stand on the on the global marketplace competitively in terms of what you are doing? Um, and, and what's being done elsewhere. Because this, again, is something I don't think people in the city of New Orleans sure. realize sure. that you guys are big players. We are. I mean, I'm somewhat biased because I'm the director of the center. But I think in terms of adult stem cells, which are stem cells isolated from um, organisms and tissues after birth, uh, New Orleans has, and Tulane and our center has always been on the forefront. Um, the area that we don't focus on in Louisiana is embryonic stem cells because that's highly ethically controversial. And because of the um, local environment and the culture within Louisiana, we don't necessarily want embryonic stem cell research to be You mean how Catholic we are? Correct. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. So a large portion of our population has an issue with embryonic stem sure, cell research. So sure. our center is never focused on embryonic stem Interesting. cells. Interesting. And other parts of the world and other parts of the U.S., that is an intense focus. And the reason for the embryonic stem cells being such an intense focus is they are truly a cell that has the ability to become any other cell type in the body that you may need. How, how, how does this award that you just received um, affect your progress in your work? Sure. So uh, this NSF award, the specific one that uh, was published, um, was about $50,000 to go travel around the United States to do customer discovery um, and to really do market validation. So a lot of times we sit in laboratories and we just work on stuff and we are very insular and we don't go out and speak to people who would actually use it, both the physician and mm -hmm. the patient. So what these awards do is allow for us scientists to get out and to actually talk to the people, to understand, you know, oh, what do they terrific. do and yeah. don't like, mm -hmm. whether or not they would even use mm -hmm. it, right? So this particular award, uh, I think we received in the end of 2015, uh, and the money lasted for quite some time. We did well over 100 interviews with patients and physicians, um, and it really changed the projection of the project, actually. Mm -hmm. um, we found out that, you know, the way that we're going about it would require extensive clinical trials through the FDA, which almost became uh, prohibitive, prohibitive to get this to, to, get to market. Yeah. Um, we found out that the original way that we were working on the nipple areola complex regeneration project was not fitting into the current workflow of plastic and 
reconstructive breast surgeons, mm. and therefore they wouldn't adopt it. Um, oh. And it became unrealistic. And uh-huh. so, I'll, uh, you know, there are a few times where Bruce and I kind of sat back after we got all this data and we said, okay, we need to break this down to a way that people would actually utilize it. It would be uh, financially advantageous to use, and we could get through the FDA within a reasonable amount of time. And so we did. So it's it, it, it because of a matter of trying to figure out, yeah, what is the way to really facilitate the acceptance of your work? Correct. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, that was that was um, pivotable, pivotable in our sort of direction of the research is to get out and speak to people who would actually utilize it, uh, talk to FDA and see whether or not, you know, what pathway would this would fit through. And through that, we were able to go back and redesign the project to be appropriate for the end user. And that's what we did. And from there, uh, we spun out a company uh, and moving forward from there. So tell me about the company. So the company is Bioaesthetics. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're located on Canal Street in the New Orleans Innovation Center, mm-hmm. and we're truly now. Um, let, let me see. Let me just figure out where is that exactly. Is that just just on the riverside of the interstate? Is that yes. that yeah. building? Okay. Yes. Yeah. Not too far from the Sanger Theater. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it is about a block and a half away. You know, from they're looking to make your whole district more of an entertainment district, yeah. right? <laughs> How do you think you're going to fit into that? <laughs> we'll find you're going to have to have some kind of the theatrical element in your lobby about your work. Yeah. So we're located about a block and a half away from Bruce's Center, from where the technology spun out. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're truly trying to transform reconstructive surgeries through regenerative medicine within the company. Uh, and our inaugural product is the nipple graft to regrow the nipple and aerial complex for women uh, or other patients who have had mastectomies due to breast cancer or other surgeries. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we're trying to do is use products that do not have cells, but rather just materials to allow the body to regenerate itself. So we allow um, basically a building frame or building blocks um, to be implanted into a person and their own cells grow into it to essentially regenerate that particular organ system, let it be mm. a piece of skin, a nipple, an areola, um, and moving forward we'll be doing I the same thing. I have so many friends, including surprisingly young women. Uh, recently, for some reason, I have too many um, daughters or friends who have recently given birth, and so obviously there's some kind of hormonal hormonal process that goes on that puts a woman at greater risk for cancer, who I, I can't imagine how important this is, would be to, to them. Yes. So we found out that after speaking to mental health professionals and the patients um, and published literature, actually, that it's been documented that a woman is more likely to undergo a life-saving mastectomy if she can actually have a nipple reconstruction immediately there afterwards. And that nipple reconstruction actually increases self-esteem. I didn't even know because I haven't had the experience directly myself, thank goodness, so far, um, to have to deal with exactly what happens. And so I didn't even know that that was an issue. You know, I haven't we never know about these either. things until Correct. we experience right. them. Correct. You know, I never had to deal with it either. I've had family friends that had it. Um, you know, my my mom's friends have had it, but no one in my direct family has had it. Mm-hmm. So it was really something that was very eye-opening um, uh-huh. in this research and understanding it and reading the published literature of statistics uh, that it actually increases self-esteem and body image if you have a nipple reconstruction after mastectomy mm-hmm. and decreases the feeling of stress a woman has during the recovery period as well and in giving them a permanent solution uh, to a nipple reconstruction or a completely regenerated nipple, rather. Mm-hmm. So it, it was a fantastic grant that we utilized, uh, and it really pushed our project forward in a really positive manner. So what's next after nipples? <laughs> question. So we're working on skin. Um, mm-hmm. You know, one of the biggest issues in and around things like burns and traumatic injury is, as you probably have seen and from people that have recovered from that, skin does not grow back naturally it never looks the same once you damage it why is that uh we don't really understand why that is mm-hmm. um certainly the um uh, the structural structural composition of the skin changes as it tries to recover and so it never looks the same mm-hmm. and we have using some of the same approaches that nick is using for the nipple areola complex we have some pretty early but pretty strong data to suggest that using a similar approach we can regenerate fairly normal uh, biologically compositioned skin and then looks fairly normal 
in animal testing that we've done so far? So I, um, not too long ago, um, I had, had a little um, squamous cell that mm-hmm. got big, er, mm-hmm. on my nose. It just popped out of nowhere mm-hmm. and grew so fast it was bizarre. And um, I, I, I kept trying to tell the Mohs surgery guy, I said, I think i, I got to get in there. He says, no, no, don't worry, it'll be all right. By the time I get in, he said, whoa, it really did grow fast. You know, sometimes doctors just yeah. don't listen to you well enough, right? So by the time I got it done, I, I wound up having to have a flap surgery. So would uh, that's gross. That is. Tr- have you ever seen anybody? I have not. It is gross. You look like a freak mm-hmm. for quite a while, mm-hmm. and then the effects of it are long term in yeah. terms of numbness and all kinds of things mm-hmm. that the doctor doesn't tell you about in advance, which is something that really makes me mad. Yes. Okay. Right. So my question is: Would something that you're talking about would that possibly avoid? That's what I had to go through? That's what we're hoping. So we're hoping that by having, again, a decellularized piece of tissue that you could implant into wherever the damage is, that the skin would want to grow back and look normal, and our data to so far suggests that that is the, actually the case. Hmm. I welcome that work. Thank you. Hurry up. <laughs> Hurry we're up. Trying. Don't know when the next one's going to pop out because apparently once you get these little things, they tend to they come, come back, back yes. which is really interesting. If yes. the, Why doesn't the skin come back but the bad stuff comes yes. back? You know, that's an interesting the question. Other, the other problem that occurs with skin are, is keloid formation. And some what of these approaches where you get that huge scarring um, it usually is a big lump of tissue that forms, and it's, it's just a horrendous-looking scar. Um, that forms. And that so approaches like this may help that as well. Right. Uh, now, um, stem cell and MS. My husband happens to mm-hmm. ha- uh, be an MS uh, uh, person, yes. and he has a psychology that is so incredibly positive that somehow that must have a genetic um, impact because um, he, he's 80 and he's still walking. Wow. That's right? fantastic. Really. So, but but I we have heard, you know, people talk about stem mm-hmm. cell in relation to MS. Yes. That's the brain. That's one that's thing that we work on. Oh, really? So we tell do. me about it. So um, MS is in what's called an autoimmune disease. Uh, multiple sclerosis oh, is what sorry. we're talking yes. about, folks. Multiple yeah. sclerosis. So multiple sclerosis is an autoimmune disease, which means your body's immune system has been triggered to attack your own body, which almost never happens. And we don't understand what the driver of it is, what causes you to What do you mean it almost MS? never happens? People with arthritis, which is sure. what? What percentage of the population sure. has arthritis? A lot. lot, yes. Yeah. But in terms and that's of autoimmune too. But in terms of things like multiple sclerosis yeah. or scleroderma or the more classic autoimmune diseases, they're not overly common. Yeah. Um, but something has triggered your body's immune system to attack itself. Mm-hmm. And the stem cells that we work with, uh, these adult stem cells, we have learned over the years. The one thing that they are absolutely fantastic at is quieting inflammation. They are anti-inflammatory. They work better than any pharmaceutical drug that's on the market. If I give these cells, in the context of inflammation, within a couple of days, all of that inflammation is gone, and it appears in our animal studies now, to wait be a, a permanent minute. fix. This is really important. It is. Because not only does that have value for a disease like MS, but from what I understand, one of the absolutely essential triggers for heart disease is inflammation. Yes. So almost all disease processes at some point have a significant inflammatory component associated with them. So I like the way you think because I think the same way. So that the stem cells uh, for a numerous array of diseases may not be a primary therapy, but if we can get the inflammation under control, that may allow another therapy to be much more effective than it is in the context wow, of ongoing Wow, that's, that's incredibly important. What's the timing on that? So there have been, I mean, our data in mice, we can take a mouse that's paralyzed and get him walking almost normally within a few days. Um, moving that to humans, uh, Nick talked about the FDA, which is the Food and Drug Administration, which regulates all of these processes and getting things into humans. Um, doing a human clinical trial costs an inordinate amount of money. Um, like what? Millions of dollars, tens of millions Why? of dollars. Um, because of all of the steps involved in getting to that point and all of the people you need to effectively do a human clinical trial in terms of the clinical care and the maintenance and the follow-up on all the patients. It's a huge number of people that have to be involved, and they'll have to be paid for their involvement. So one of the difficulties we face 
not in just in regenerative medicine, but all of biomedical research in taking anything towards a human clinical trial right now is the funding to pay for those human clinical trials. In the couple decades ago, you used to be able to write a grant to the federal government, and they would say, great idea, we love it, here's money, go do your and, clinical and, trial. And, and are you saying that that's not, that's it's, no longer true? It's not as common as it used to be. And why not? Um, cuts in the federal budget. So the NIH budget... Cuts on the federal budget to accommodate tax breaks for the one percent. Uh, I know you're not going to say that. That could be possible. I'm saying that. Or uh, military activities overseas, or things like that. Yeah. So you know, there's a limited number of tax dollars, and they have to be parsed out across all institutions. And then, so the NH budget, not that it's minuscule. But it hasn't grown in probably the last five to seven years. So some, of somebody any needs to be doing some really uh, important marketing work, just like you're talking about. Yes. You know, in, in part, what you were talking about, what you've had to do on your nipple research is marketing. Yes. Sounds like there needs to be a and much more concerted joint initiative on the part of a lot of you all doing research in medicine, not just at Tulane, but at other institutions, sure. to um, get the public to better understand how critical this is. And that's why I do shows like this, is because if the public doesn't understand what their tax dollars are being spent on, and having an informed public, then they can contact their government officials and say, why isn't the NIH budget being raised? They're doing really fantastic, cool stuff. So aside from something as important and critical as looking at ways of reducing inflammation mm -hmm. through um, new techniques of dealing with um, stem cells, uh, what are some of the other really visionary um, uh, things that you're exploring through your program, and actually not just in your program, but at Tulane mm -hmm. in medical fields that you know, if we knew more about and understood more about in New Orleans, we can be proud of this and sure. support what you're doing. Sure. So, I mean, for us, I think the most exciting thing we're working on now is the orga organogenesis, the ability to make a organ, lung, liver, brain, in the laboratory. Um, one of the other hot fields right now is um, an organ on a chip, so to speak. So it's essentially, can we make a mini liver or a mini brain that grows on a microchip that we can study in the laboratory. And that is actually kind of making... a virtual yes. organ, so to speak. And there's a couple of entities within New Orleans area working on that. It's a, it's a huge focus right now for the um, National Institutes of Health, which fund bi most biomedical research in this country, is organs on a chip. Um, the rationale for that is if I can make a brain and I can make a lung and I can make a liver, I can connect them all together and study their interplay, which we can't really do in the context of a living human being. So that's a very hot topic. Um, other things that are going on in medicine, uh, Tulane and New Orleans, uh, genomic medicine is a huge effort. So the ability to take a cell from your body and figure out all of the genes that are being expressed in your body and then being able to make critical medical care decisions for you based on your gene profile. The day is coming where everyone's genomic profile is somewhere in a database. And if you run into an issue, there's a physician that will go to that database and do things like, well, is this drug going to work in that patient? And that's a field called pharmacogenomics. So we're going to dictate pharmaceutical treatments. <laughs> pharmacogenomics. Pharmacogenetics, pharmacogenetics. Yes. And that's essentially, we will dictate your medical care based on pharmaceutical medicines based on your genome. So um, have you done your genetic? Um, I have not. I knew that was going to be the answer. <laughs> that's why I asked it. I just, you know, it, it's like, you know, uh, I, I'm a PR person. Ask me how, how, how I'm doing, doing PR for myself, right? right? right. We, and what about you? Well, I don't work with the genome, so I do not have, did not get my genome sequence, but I have no reason to, <laughs> reason not to. I'm, I'm working on materials to regrow body Well, parts. I mean, I think it's something we should really all do, because again, to expand the, the gene bank and the information available right. is important. So, so, so one way we can, in a sense, help you do what you're doing right is if we did go out and do our, what do you call it, our gene... Get your genome sequenced. Our genome sequenced. So the, so the, Can I just ask you, if you wanted to do that, how would you do that? That's a very good question. Um, there are entities, 
companies, uh, private foundations that uh, do collect donor samples to do that. I don't think it's very commonplace right now, so I don't think there's, you know, I'm going to call up this company here in New Orleans and I'm going to go give them a little blood and a few months from now they're going to give me my genome. We should have that here. Uh, it may come to if reality. If we want to be a, a major international medical center, which is what some of the folks in the um, in the economic development world who um, yes. built all those buildings in Mid-City and took down all the little guys, that's what they had in mind. We, we, we should have something like that happening here. I will say we, we do need something unique that other cities don't offer. And personally, I think the things that Nick and I are working on are something that is unique enough, unique enough that not a lot of other cities have right now. Um, I do agree that we should expand that to other areas as well. Well, I think that what I'm sort of saying is is, is looking at the more applied yes. side that is doable at this time. A lot of it, as you said, we're not going to see um, stem cell, a lot of stem cell improvements that will really impact our lives for a couple decades. It'll right? be a while, yes. Okay, so in the meantime, to do things which engage the public mm -hmm. in what you're doing is important. So for, to tell people, hey, we, we're, we're going to work on, on your, your genome. Is that how you say it? Yes, genome. 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 Mm -hmm. So like I, I pronounce my name, genome. For those of you who keep calling me on those sales calls, and you call me Jeanne, and I hang up on you because <laughs> I know you're a sales call, I pronounce my name Jean. Okay, so... It, 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 to do something like making this this um, available, which is not going to have a result immediately in right. terms of it's, it, it may or may not. There actually may be some value sure. that can come from having my genome sequence mm -hmm. now. It seems to me like that would be a mighty good idea to have a um, walk-in in your in your lobby. A uh, place where you can go in and get your genome sequence done. I'll bring that up to the dean when I get back to work tomorrow and see how he <laughs> responds. So, I mean, one of the issues with the genome sequencing is we can sequence your genome. One of the things we're at now is we're still we're, – we're making rapid progress, but interpreting what it all means, we don't really understand yet. I understand, but still banking it, sure. getting it in there. Sure. So that in, it's just like, you know, some people – you know, we've certainly there are many women now who understand the value of parking their their um, uh, um, oh, uh, um, um, oh I can't believe I'm having trouble with this, but not their ovaries, but their their eggs, yes. right? Mm -hmm. For future purposes, sure. especially for you know things happen, terrible things happen, sure. and having them available is important. Yes. We've learned how to do that, even though it may not be of value to us ever right. or in our lifetime, but it's still something. So this just seems to me like something that would be well, really... Well, you brought up a very interesting topic because if you're going to have your genome sequence, why not bank some stem cells? Why not donate some stem cells? So we can tell me about why that's that would be a value. Tell me. So I mean, I have an idea, but I want to hear what you... So when we get ready to uh, treat a disease with stem cells, your stem cells are already in the freezer. We just have to give them back to you at that point. So one of the biggest industries in this country right now is cord blood banking. So when a person has a baby, they will draw out the blood from an umbilical cord, and they offer families the ability to process that and then store that for the um, possibility that the baby may need stem cell transplant later in life. So uh, for everyone that's listening that is going to have a baby, someone is going to approach them at some point and say, do you want the cord blood banked for this child. Right. And it, there, there are monetary costs associated with doing that, but why aren't we all banking our stem cells? Because the one thing I will tell you about uh, my stem cells and your stem cells is because we're a little older than Nick, is our stem cells are not as good as Nick's stem cells. Mm -hmm. So it's important to do it when you're younger? Yes. Ooh, I'm hearing the beat. Oh, is it over already? Yeah. That's too bad. <laughs> and, you know, um, you can you can tell that that I have a, a, a personal interest in health issues. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm kind of a little bit of, 
you know, my, my friends and family call me Dr. Jean because I'm always in, in trying to help people understand better and do better in taking care of themselves. Um, well, if I can ever come back and help you, just give me a uh, call. You just give me a shout. Okay. You've got something to share with me or somebody else okay. at Tulane in your medical practice, in your medical center there, has something I would love to have you okay. roll on. Great. I'm very proud of the work being done um, here in our city, and I want people to know about it. So, guys, this is Gene Nathan. This is Crosstown Conversations, another show down, and I will be back with you next Wednesday night between 6 and 7. Thank you, Jazz, for your work and help. My engineer, my WBOK's engineer, is just not my personal engineer. Um, good night, everybody. Mm-hmm.